From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. You know, right out of the shoot, I wanted to get to this because this is a pretty big announcement. We'll have the Premier David Eby on the Jazz Joe Hall Show at about four o'clock today. But before we get to the Premier and his thoughts on this seamless treatment that is now being uh, lauded and touted and everybody saying that this is a step in the right direction, this Road to Recovery initiative uh, that helps those with addictions, I wanted to see if everybody was on board with this. So we go to the lines. Eleanor Stuko is with BC United. She's a South Surrey MLA. Kind enough to kick off our show this afternoon Eleanor good afternoon good afternoon to you Rob how are you I'm okay and you know what when I see these um, announcements that come out I always say it must have taken a long road to get to this moment you hear the announcement you see uh, you know David Eby and co coming out saying that this is a big step how would you judge this announcement today well, I mean, we're always happy to see more treatment services, detox services, and, you know, recovery and support for people that are suffering from addictions and, and drug use in BC. I would say, though, it's unfortunate that it does fall short of the 45 beds that they promised in the spring. So this isn't the first time that this road to recovery has been announced. It's actually, you know, par for the course of the NDP. It's a multiple announcement, um, and I think we're going to start seeing more and more of this as we get closer to our election, but it does fall short. Um, and look, we're seven years into NDP government, um, and honestly, we're not seeing the urgency with which you'd expect for a public health emergency. I think a lot of today's announcement focused on the process of how somebody who reaches out for help can then be met with support, not left waiting for services. We talk about numbers, and obviously we are focusing on what's going on in Vancouver, but there are surrounding areas, and I live in an area that definitely needs additional support. I talk about the Tri-Cities. Are we expecting some additional efforts there, or is this just like you said, uh, maybe a little lipstick on a pig? Well, I think we're more on the lipstick on a pig category because they've been promising to roll things out for seven years. And again, they said that a lot of these things will not be fully implemented until March of 2025. It's more than a full year from now. So we know that we're losing six people on average every single day from addiction. I would say that a year and a half to uh, get things fully implemented isn't acceptable. You know, and when we look at a couple of weeks ago, the chief coroner and her panel released a report. They talked about 250,000 people using drugs in British Columbia, 150,000 of those people suffering from addictions. You know, 34 beds isn't enough and it's not going to cut it. I would actually be ashamed to stand up in the public for probably the third or fourth time announcing this project and actually fall short by 10 beds of the promise that you made only a few months ago. You know, and, and I, I don't want to, like, you know, go on and drone on, but I, I had a mom reach out to me last Friday. I had a meeting. Uh, her son's only 15. He, you know, is suffering from addiction. He actually tried to detox on his own for four days. There is no services for youth. And the other part was is that she didn't ever hear. No one ever told her. No one has ever informed her about opioid agonist therapy. So her son could have received those medications so that he wouldn't be suffering for those four days and then ultimately go back to drug use because of the pain. We're failing people, particularly young people in this province, and, and actually it's, there's no excuse for it. 
Eleanor Sturko is BC United, South Surrey MLA, joining us here on the Jill Bennett Show. Eleanor, I always think, uh, you know, in addition to beds and the number available, the demographics in which we're looking at, and, and I'm always staggered and surprised when I see the 23 to 30 demographic, which is a young populace that really is in need of these beds. So, you know, the face of a drug user, the face of addiction seems to almost be changing before our eyes. So in addition to 20, you know, the additional 123 treatment beds that were announced a couple of months ago that that was the goal it, it just seems like uh the moisture from a kiss to try and put out a fire and and it just seems like it's really short am i wrong to say that no that's a good analogy the moisture from a kiss you know you're right about the face of addiction it's primarily impacting men young men we see more and more youth as well especially male youth that are impacted and i think you know, when we look at the way that the COVID pandemic was treated and that public health emergency, how all the stops were pulled out, you'd see things like vaccine clinics and medications and testing stations just set up hmm. with rapid speed. And we don't see the same kind of urgency, um, you know, when we're dealing with the addictions crisis. And I think it's really, really a failure. If you're going to declare a public health emergency, then you should be acting as though you're in the middle of an emergency and not doing things like talking about things that won't be rolled out for a year and a half. And I think, you know, there is a lot more that we could do. And a lot of it isn't just about the beds. It's about looking at all the four pillars that we should be acting with in this province. Enforcement, education, prevention is a big one that is like very scarce to find in this province and then of course your your recovery your harm reduction your treatment but there's a lot more work that can be done and should be done simultaneously and should be done as though we are in an emergency because we are six people a day are dying including today I wonder if, Eleanor, and my final question for you, I do appreciate your time, if maybe Safe Supply isn't buying this government a little extra time. They're, you know, saying, oh, the drugs are out there. We're trying to make sure that everything's safe so that people that are using can at least stay alive. But the reality is, I think you bring up a really good point with regards to, hey, if we can do this with COVID, we can definitely do this with this five alarm fire right here in front of our faces. Yeah, totally. So one of our platform pieces for Better as Possible, which is our addictions and mental health, a treatment platform is that we want to open a virtual opioid dependency program. They have one in Alberta that would give people anywhere that you can access a computer. It doesn't have to be your own. You could actually go into a service provider to use the computer, but you could be hooked up with an addiction specialist and get onto um, you know, a medical program that might include pharmaceutical alternatives might include being able to get the person on opioid agonist therapy to end the pain that they're feeling. And that could be drawn all across the province to give people access to those important medications and support the same day. I think that, you know, before we look at any other model, we need to start doing the so-called safe supply or the pharmaceutical alternatives program in an actual effective way. And it could be as easy as using some of the services that we already have going, we have um, some online health services, just expanding those with more addiction specialty focuses to get people the medications they need and to do it today. It's interesting. I appreciate your time today, Eleanor. Uh, I know we're going to have the premier on at four o'clock to maybe counter some of your thoughts, but at the same time, I wanted to make sure we got both sides of this. So your time was valuable today. Let's do this again. Yeah, you got it, Rob. Thanks a lot.
Rob Fain for Jill. Remember the fire season, how it started so, so early in Alberta before it even made its way to British Columbia? Well, you know what? This is a time where everybody's finally had an opportunity to take a deep breath, collect their thoughts, and then hopefully get ready for what is obviously going to be a tough 2024 campaign as well when it comes to fighting fires across this country. But you know what? We need to give our firefighters support. I think that's a given. And I don't know if we give them enough. And I don't know if that thought will be echoed, but I would assume that it would by Ken McMullen, who is the president of the Canadian Association of Fire Chiefs and Fire Chief of Red Deer, Alberta, who's kind enough to join me this afternoon. Ken, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm okay, and you know what? This is going to be a real easy interview for me because I can tell you this. I am a huge supporter of the firefighters across this country, and I know that they need support, and I know that they need a commitment. So what are you asking for from the feds? Well, thank you so much. We do value and appreciate your support, and uh, it does not go fall on on, uh, deaf ears. We are here in Ottawa this week where we are uh, spending the next two days meeting with members of the federal government to really sound the alarm. And and it's one of those cases where, as chiefs, we very seldom are the ones that pull the alarm. But in this case, uh, we have done uh, our third survey, and this is called the 2023 Great Canadian Survey, where we had uh, input from 534 individuals across 3,200 fire departments. And the data is quite staggering. And as you indicated in your introduction, uh, not only did we have issues in the fire season of 2023, uh, but we are very, very concerned about what the fire season of 2024 might be bringing upon us. Well, Ken, I know just this past week here in Vancouver, we were all, uh, you know, applauding the first ever e-truck that came out, the electric fire truck, and that's all fine and dandy, and that's great PR. But, you know, looking at the census here, I was blown away. uh, 24% of the departments are operating with primary turnout gear that is 10 years old or older. Six out of 10 departments are still using pumper fire trucks that are 15 years older. And all of this exceeds industry standards and best practices. We need some help. We need some help. Uh, you, I could not have said it differently or better. And uh, like I said, we are at times our own worst enemies. Firefighters will continue to go to calls. They will go to calls in your community and mine uh, at a drop of a hat and, and continue to deliver the services in the best way that they can possibly do so. We're not giving them the tools. We're not giving them the right tools to most effectively do their jobs. And when you talk about that equipment outside of its recommended service uh, lifespan, we're putting ourselves and you as a community at risk if we are not addressing the need for new modern equipment to be put into all communities across this country. You know, Ken, the other thing that I, and this is something we've talked about in the BC ferry sector, we talk about it in the health sector, and I, I want to bring light on this as well because 30% of Canada's firefighters are 50 or older, and you got to think retirement, and how can you get the next generation interested in being a firefighter? Do you find that to be a challenge right now? It's absolutely a challenge. Let me give you a really, uh, it's a pretty gross uh, statistic here, but I'll I'll spell it out for you simply. Less than 2% of the human population see, hear, or smell that what a first responder hears, sees, and smells. And just put that into perspective for a minute. When we talk about the impact of what it means to be a first responder in this country, 98% of the general population have no idea what it is we're talking about when we say we had a bad day. We have individuals uh, that are sticking in the service uh, well beyond their own mental ability to do so, Uh, but they're doing it because somebody needs to respond to that call. We are are aging out uh, at at the one end of our uh, industry, 
There are some municipalities that their insurance policies will not allow people to be frontline firefighters uh, over the age of 60, yet we are struggling at the other end to attract individuals early enough to be uh, willing and wanting to be a uh, firefighter in this country based on uh, the, the risk that they face every single day. So we talk about outdated equipment. We talk about the desire. I want to get into the numbers as well. We'll talk about some of the tax breaks that maybe we can do to incentivize this job. Mm -hmm. But before we get to that, Ken, one thing I want to talk to you about, I didn't realize that this has been taken off the table, the Joint Emergency Preparedness Program that helps replenish the supply of equipment from fire trucks and radio communication, all the gear. I didn't know that that was something that even needed to be reinstated. And I think a lot of our listeners wouldn't realize that we're still in need of that as well. Yeah, so the the program that you refer to, we we in the fire service commonly refer to it as the JEP funding or the Joint Emergency Preparedness Program, was in existence up until 2013. And in 2013, it was indicated that it had met its objectives. The problem was it hadn't. Um, we realized very quickly as soon as uh, 2014 occurred that we needed to reinvest in that program, but it just hasn't happened yet. Some might suggest that the fire season of 2023 was somewhat unpredictable or caught us off guard or by surprise. Whether you believe in that or not, the fact of the matter is the fire season of 2024 will not catch us by surprise. We need to be prepared. We need to understand that what we saw in 23 will likely happen again in 24, and we need to be prepared for that. I circle that back to the JEP funding because the JEP funding allowed municipalities to apply for funding for specialty training and specialty equipment. When you think about the amount of uh, effort uh, utilized in the wildfires this past summer, that is not what we say is our typical response for a municipal firefighter. We don't have the equipment and the training necessary to be wildland firefighters, yet the situations that we're facing across Canada is more of our municipal firefighters are there helping our colleagues in wildfire. Ken, if you in Ottawa don't get absolutely everything that you want this week, you call me back and I will give you this platform as often as you want to bang the drum because I think it is absolutely imperative that you guys get the support, especially from the federal government. I really do. So, Ken, keep up the good work. Thank you for everything that you and all your firefighters do. And please let us know how we can help in the future. Your support is, uh, is extremely appreciated and valued. Thank you to you and your listeners uh, for everything that you do in your own communities. Uh, and we will be in touch, there's no doubt. Second hour of the Jill Bennett Show. I'm Rob Fay here right through Friday. So I'm looking forward to uh, planting some roots and hanging out with you over the next five days. And, you know, topics like this always catch me by surprise because you always assume that you're just the gold standard when it comes to healthcare in Canada. And I know some people's eyebrows immediately go up and some will even roll their eyes themselves. But Canada right now is trailing behind several others uh, countries-wise when it comes to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, also known as OECD, when it comes to the number of physicians relative to the population. To talk about this a little bit more, because I think it's something we need to get some colour on, Tara Kieran, she's a family physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Unity Health in Toronto. Tara, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, thank you for making time for me, and let's get right into this, because again, I always think of Canada as one of the gold standards out there, but you look at other countries like Norway, some of them overseas that are doing things that we could definitely learn from. What are some of those things? Yeah, so I mean, at its core, I mean, we have values as Canadians that care should be based on you know need and not ability to pay. 
Yet at the same time, we find ourselves in a situation where far too many people don't have access to primary care or a family doctor, like that front door of our healthcare system. So I think the latest stats that we've seen is more than one in five adults don't have access to primary care. And fundamentally, what we did with this study is we actually looked at countries where that's not the case, where actually close to 100% of people have access to a family doctor or primary care. And I think what's interesting here is, first, that is possible. These these, um, countries have designed their system to make that possible. Um, They do that, for example, by just like uh, ensuring that there's population coverage of family practices. You're automatically registered to a center or you have a right to register to a center. Imagine that none none of these like waiting list type of things. You, you, You get the primary care you need. And then I think the second piece is they actually fund it according to that. So Canada is spending less of its total health budget on primary care than these other countries. And actually, interestingly, it's also spending less of their total health budget on publicly funded care than these countries that we compared Canada to. You talk about some of these countries having, quote, guaranteed access to primary care and also near their home. And that ensures that, you know, the funding is appropriately, you know, I guess, sent out. But I'm really surprised by what you just meant that we or what you just said, that Canada spends less on its primary care than it does on its private health care. Would that surprise most? Oh, so just to clarify, when we look at the total health budget, what I'm saying is about 70 percent of the health budget is spent uh, on the public system and about 30 is spent privately funded. Ah. So that would be things like, you know, dental care for many people or pharmaceutical like medication payments. Those are things that our private individuals are funding and are not covered by our OHIP or by our um, health insurance card provincially. So uh, I wasn't and, and but then separately, a separate stat that we saw was that when we look at the total healthcare budget, you know, less of the total healthcare budget is spent on primary care um, in Canada than it is in these other countries. So two different stats. Yeah, two different stats, and both lead me down different, uh, you know, I guess, question periods. Netherlands, Norway, the UK, Finland, um, upwards of 95% of their people with primary care clinicians. What are what do we do to get into that conversation? Is it strictly funding? Is it uh, the complete infrastructure? Like, how do we get even close to that? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, I do think we have to set the goal that everybody should be guaranteed access. We need to, we do need to spend more money on primary care. But I think some of the other things, like we actually have fewer family, we we have fewer doctors overall per capita. So we have to train more physicians. We also need to, um, you know, hold physicians more accountable as to like how they're practicing in the system. And these other countries do that. So there's just more accountability as to, you know, where you set up, what your scope of practice is, what your hours are. But then they also pay physicians differently. So many more of the physicians are on salary or capitation. So what that means is instead of pay by the visit, you're getting paid per patient per hour or paid per, um, you know, per patient per year. So it's a different way of funding the care. And then they also have more team, more people working in teams um, and more organized care. So like a really interesting thing is, you know, they have organized after hours care, which means that you don't really need to have walk-in clinics. So all those resources that we spend on urgent care clinics, walk-in clinics, they don't really have that. You, you see your family doctor when you're sick during the day, after hours, the family doctors kind of band together to provide access. Um, so you don't need to have the resources spent on walk-in clinics. Tara Kieran is a family physician at St. Michael's Hospital back in Toronto, at Unity Health as well. Um, I always assume 
that people want to work in Canada and they want to work in our healthcare system globally when they come from abroad. But how, when you look at it from a global scale, how appealing is Canada in 2023 when it comes to the standard? Are people saying, screw it, I'm going to go to the UK, I'm going to go to Norway, I'm going to go where they get paid better? Like, is Canada still the gold standard that we assume it is? That's such a great question. And I will say it depends on which country people are coming from. I mean, we do actually remunerate our physicians quite well. So I think from a payment perspective, that's still a draw. Our physicians uh, do have quite a lot of autonomy. So uh, and, and, and many people value that. Um, I will say, though, that one of the challenges is that over the pandemic, we've seen that there are drawbacks to having autonomy. So by that, I mean, like many family doctors are small business owners. And when the pandemic hit, actually, a lot of the costs of the pandemic were downloaded onto them. They had to find their own personal protective equipment. Um, If fewer people were coming in, that hit their bottom line, but they still had to pay their rent and their staff. And now we've got increases in cost of living. So their, their rent is going up and they need to pay more wages. So all of that um, contributes to stress of uh, running a small business. But it'll, but at the same time, when you run a small business, you have a lot of autonomy. So it kind of depends on, on what you want. And, and I think what many of us are, talking, uh, are ta- starting to talk about now, maybe it's time to give up some of our autonomy as doctors, not all of it, but some of it, and, and, tr- and trade off for a bit more infrastructure support. So what if, you know, governments help to set up uh, the clinic? And, and then you just, you know, came in and you, you know, paid a bit of overhead from your billings, but that you didn't have to worry about like the hiring of people and the renting of space because someone else is managing that. So I think we have, we can learn from other countries from that perspective as well. Yeah, it's great insight. I have one real quick question for you. I know we're up against the clock here. I heard a report that there were fewer people interested in doing general practice that, you know, obviously everybody wants to go and and make their money, what have you. But obviously, if we're going to try to get people in for this, for this initial care, this primary care, we need people to still be interested in being like you are a family physician. You're absolutely right. And so what we're seeing is post pandemic, lots of People um, retiring more sooner than we would have expected um, because of the stresses of the pandemic. But we also see a trend over the last decade of fewer medical students choosing family medicine. And even if they do choose family medicine, more of them are going into areas like emergency medicine, hospitalist medicine, sports medicine, what we call focused practice, as opposed to setting up their own family practice, which is what we really need them to do. And so um, some of these same things that we see in other countries, like paying physicians differently, um, having teams, those are some of the same things that might make the, the practice of family medicine more attractive for um, our new generation. It's fantastic insight. Tara, I know you're up against the clock as well. Thank you for your time today. Let's speak again. Yes, thanks for this conversation. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.